Hey, MaximumFun.org donors, it's me, Jesse Thorne. This is a special bonus for all of you who have supported Maximum Fun. Um, and with me in the Max Fun Studios is Nate DeMeo, creator of the Memory Palace. Hey, Nate. Hey, Jesse. We sh- probably shouldn't talk about what I don't like about Buffy, which is what we were talking about right before we went on microphone, because shouldn't, that could get us into trouble. Shouldn't there be like some sort of supporter circle tier? <laughs> <laughs> like if you are a like a triple platinum double dare, you know, donor, you get to listen to <laughs> the things what that we really Jesse about. doesn't like about exactly. Buffy specifically. And the things I like, yeah, okay. I feel like the pro- the problem with that is I could literally, if I went into what I don't like about Buffy. I could alienate at least 75% of our donor base within 10 minutes. I know it's true. But I figured that if if they have come this far and they are donors now – you think they're ready to go down the they're ready to go down the trail with me. I think they probably are. I also think you already have their money. <laughs> well, I'm hoping they're going to continue <laughs> no, to supporting us into the future, Nate. Well, that, that's what that's what we're going to do right now. Okay, we're well, give them the content that they've come to love from Maximum Fun. Let's talk about the Memory Palace. When you when did you make when did you get the idea to make the Memory Palace? Um, you know, uh, let's see. Um, I got the idea to make the Memory Palace uh, in theory, if not the actual Memory Palace itself, um, way back when I started to get into radio. Um, I once had a conversation uh, with a friend of mine who I, I believe I believe you know, uh, Ben Walker from Too Much Information. Sure, brilliant years, radio producer. Absolutely. Years ago, he and I were, were working on the same show in Providence, Rhode Island. It was like a year or so into my, my career um, in public radio. And um, we both didn't love the show we were working on. It was this sort of talk show. We didn't like booking guests and whatnot. And he and I had this uh, conversation at, uh, at the bar at an Indian food restaurant after work one day. And we were, we were sort of you know, mapping out sort of what we really wanted to do. And, uh, and Ben, to his incredible credit, like 12 years later, um, what he wanted to do was, was what he was doing then, which is 12 years ago, a version of <laughs> Too Much Information with Benjamin Walker. And, uh, uh, and he continues to do it. And, and uh, it's incredible. Um, I wanted to do a half-hour show where every every piece was less than two minutes long. That was my whole thing. I wanted to do a thing of tiny moments and of of uh, little stories um, where the sto- while the stories themselves were uh, each incredible because this is a fictitious show that only lived in my imagination. Um, you know, the real sort of power of it would would have been sort of composition and juxtaposition. And um, so I had this idea of like... Wait, of, so wait, hold on. So what you're saying is that the juice of it would have been about the relationship between the stories. So it exactly. wouldn't just have been like, if you don't like this, wait for the next thing. Exactly. It wouldn't just be... Yeah, it, that's the thing. Like I, I, like I found a lot of power in the idea of the magazine show. Mm-hmm. Um, because the magazine show in a way is, uh, even though most magazine shows are actually pretty bad, um, the magazine show is ultimately a um, it's a cabinet of wonders. You know, you go from one thing to the next, and uh, you know you don't know what's coming next, and, and things and things derail you. The magazine it, show is like the format of like all things considered, yeah, exactly. or whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's an, or bullseye. You know, it's the, it's and so the idea that you would go from uh, you know from sort of wonderful, hopefully uh, interesting segment to interesting segment, sort of different place to place, um, at its core is, I mean, that's what a Cabinet of Wonders is. That's what a, um, that's what a museum is supposed to do for you when well, you let's be clear, hall to hall. That is not what the new public radio show Cabinet of Wonders is. It is not. 
this is that's a musical variety. That's show. right. You're, yes, exactly. You, you, we have this is the ba- this is where we tell you there's been a bait and switch. Yes, you have actually funded the show. Yes, Captain of Wonders, the musical variety show from NPR. Um, no, and uh, so I, you know, I, I really love this idea that you would have that you could. Uh, do sort of very small things um, and focus on these really sort of like wonderful little moments. And it was sort of an idea that I had in the back of my head for a very long time. You know, flash forward, you know, a decade in the sort of journalism trenches um, at various public radio programs in Boston and then out here for Marketplace. And um, and I'd come up with this, you know, I, I had come up with an idea to produce a, a, a sort of a weekly hour long that would be short history stories. And I had... You know, continue to take this kind of thread. Like I, I believe that, um, particularly with something like history, if you turn in the beginning of an hour and they tell you they're uh, going to talk about the Korean War, and you think you don't give a crap about the, the Korean War. You, there's, you have no reason to listen. Um, but yeah, five minutes of the Korean War, you might listen. And so, from just a pure practical perspective of just getting people listen, I thought, you know, if you can get people to listen to short things, then then they'll be engaged. But also, I found real power in shortness. <laughs> you know, I, I really found that there was that, um, you know, I, I was just one of these people that always sort of wished that the chills you get in a concert for the first 25 minutes and then they kind of abate as like your feet get a little tired or you get a little drunk or, or the guy next to you, you know, starts texting or whatever. Um, I always thought, you know, let's, let's end it right now. Let's end it in 20 minutes because like because because, you know, uh, I just felt like, you know, most things in, in a way, it's a simple thing. But I think most things go on too long. Most things sort of overstay their welcome. And um, so I wanted to find if there were ways to tell tell stories and tell stories powerfully um, in a way where you were sort of, you, uh, you know, from a practical perspective, in a way that you were simply getting in and getting out. Um you know, but then beyond that, as I really started to like look at what that was, and really started to try to find a way to, you know, tell uh, small stories, um, you know, I just got really, I kind of fell in love with the the, the kind of practice of uh, sitting down and trying to um, take something, um, take something that at one point moved me. You know, for instance, uh, you know, a lot of the stories. I'm. Uh, I think that that the assumption uh, about me, if people have any assumptions at all, that is not true, is that I'm not a history buff. I'm not a big reader of history books. Um, you know, I. You know, if people you often, wear historical costume. I, yes, exactly. I I pretty much yes. I, I do a lot of living history demonstrations. I'm, <laughs> I'm a professional butter turner on the weekends. Sure. <laughs> it's several different butter turning places. Sure. Um, you know, you know, I have I have no degree, and I, and but you know, I I but I love you know stories of the past. You you work at a variety of different locations in Churnington, in Churnington, the neighborhood here in Los Angeles, which is primarily butter. I am on I am on the board of Churnington. Yeah, exactly. The neighborhood association. The, it's no, it's the board. It's, oh, okay. It's a, yeah, it's a formal formal board structure. Gotcha. Um, but uh, now you know. So I you know one of these people that that I do love stories of the past and I am, you know, I may not be a history buff, but I am, you know, full on nerd. And so I enjoy a fine historical home tour and, uh, you know, and I enjoy a good history documentary. Have you ever been to Hearst Castle? I have several, on a couple of occasions. How fucking great is that? Hearst Castle is pretty great. Right. Like I, I did not know Hearst Castle was going to be nearly as great as it was when I went there. Now Hearst Castle is one of those things that, 
you know, if you're not from California, um, you know, it's it's it is Hearst's castle. So it's the thing that Xanadu from uh, Citizen Kane is sort of based on this like gigantic mansion that you know the the founder of the Hearst newspaper empire you know pulled together when there's zebras and there's like crazy artwork and there are rooms you know this room is done in the 12th century. How about style. this? There's a whole part of the house that's built at two thirds scale for children. Yes, exactly. And that's, furniture, room sizes, doorways, everything. No, I mean, I feel like there are not, there are, you know, at this point, there, there may be too many billionaires, but there are not enough eccentric billionaires. Yes. And I feel like there should be, there should be more people like Hearst doing things at two thirds scale. Yes. Yeah, they, they should be like, walk- not just bankrolling Newt Gingrich's presidential campaign. No, they should be, wa- they should be like holding like board meetings for their, you know, Turnington board, like with like, you know, with like pieces of like, like whole, uh, you know, sushi octopus tentacles wrapped around their arms, just like, you know, like chomping them. <laughs> chomping them <laughs> like if you're going to have that kind of money, like, like live it up, like, like, you know, just like go for it. But anyway, so Hearst went for it, and so now he has this giant house, and like, yeah, giant house, great, and but it's this, it is this tourist attraction, you know. And I always figured that it was in part just because, oh, it's the thing that you can stop at when you're driving up the one. It's like it's a thing. It's like it's a, like a giant ball of yarn, but it is great. Oh, it's so great. Okay, so Sorry. you were excited. <laughs> no, I I started that because I always love to talk about the Hearst Castle because it's like my favorite. Have you ever seen the California's Gold with Huel Hauser where he goes there? He gets I, I, to go swimming. I, it's, how does he look in the trunks? He's he thinks that I'll, I'll tell you what he thinks of the whole operation. He thinks it's amazing. I'm sure that he does. Um, okay, so yes. here's here's my question to you. Okay. So did you? So you started out with this idea of just wanting little things. Yes, little things. So when did the history part of it come in if you are not a guy who sits around reading historical texts? Um, you know, I think that there was a little bit of a practical thing. There was a little bit, you know, not to get you know too deep into the weeds, but some of it was like we have all of our – you know, public radio had all its humanities categories covered. There's a literature show. There's a arts and entertainment show. There's whatever. There's, you know, car repair. So it's all the big majorable categories of your – you know, of your humanities uh, institution. And, you know, there is a history show. And, your and major humanities categories, literature, car repair. Exactly. It's, it, I, I'm not sure I can think of another. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so for some it was practical. But, but the truth is, like, you know, I, I really am fascinated by the past. And more specifically, I'm sort of fascinated with memory. And, you know, the ways that uh, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves order, you know, not just sort of order our understanding of ourselves, like literally create who we are. And, um, you know, at some point in, in my, really in my mid twenties, I got on this, and this kick sort of like watching the way that that, you know, played out internally. And then also like, like watching the way that that played out in history, like watching, watching the ways that, um, things became the big deal, whether it was pop cultural, you know, why, why this band over that band, um, you know, or, you know, historical, why, you know, this, this president versus that president. And, um, you know, so, you know, so I would I would watch, you know, whether it's a Ken Burns documentary or whatever. And um, is that you? Not me. It's not me. Interesting. 
Um, and so I would sit there and I would, uh, you know, I'd watch that thing and I, and I would find myself like really moved by a fact. Do you think Retta left her phone in here I would, when I interviewed her this I feel morning? like Retta would have come back. Yeah, Retta I feel like Retta doesn't. Back but, she's but no, also, she's no shrinking violet. I also think that Retta might have to have more than one phone. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's a good point. She's that kind of person. So, okay, this is what I want to ask you yes. before you continue on. I want to ask you if you can give me an example of you examining the way memory shapes personal narratives, what becomes important internally. Internally? Because sure. you said externally, but I'm interested in internal to start with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I feel like I feel like if you if you have a, if you are a donor, I feel like you should get the intimate story. Sure. The um, you know, uh, when I was when I was a teenager, I had um, I had a terrible uh, disease. I had a terrible thyroid disease, and it uh, it was the kind of it was this strange thing where I was very sick for a long time, but didn't realize it for for various reasons. And uh, when I found out about it, like it was the kind of thing where they said, "Hey, uh, you're nearly dead, but now that you're in the hospital, like you're going to be fine." And, and so, which is the best way to find out that you've nearly died? Because it's yeah. like, "Hey, okay, I didn't have to worry about anything, and now." That is me. We should explain that you Sorry. installed it. You installed a doorbell in here. I did. I don't understand what's going on. It's you know because this is my first iPhone, and I actually don't know how to truly turn it off. It's <laughs> <laughs> just good stuff. Um, yeah, and so uh, so I had this like you know near death experience, which is absolutely the best thing to have near death experience, and it's also the best time to have near death experience. There, you're 17 years old. Um, you still have plenty of time to turn it around. Um, but you also, uh, yeah, but it was also the kind of thing where, like, you know, if you're reading Kerouac for the first time and, like, you know, the books around you and the art around you, like Harold and Maud and, you know, and On the Road and other things, like, they're telling you to, like, just, like, live, man. And Rand, of course. Well, of course. You know, if they're really just, like, telling you to, like, you know, to go for it. Um like, that's the time when you can sort of have the energy and, like, the muscle to, like, go for it. And, like, it was a very, very sort of important moment in my life. Around that time, um, uh, living, growing up in southern New England, Hurricane Bob, the greatest hurricane name of all time, if one of the weaker hurricanes, rolls through town. And um, we have a blackout, and some buddies of mine from school come over the house. And, uh, and we're, like, playing poker by candlelight. We're eating, eating chips. It's, everything's very sort of, like, wholesome and, and fun. Have a fine time. Uh, the next day, my mom goes, "Boy, you guys were like, you guys were just laughing, laughing your heads off. Like, you, you must have had like the sound like you were having the best time of your life." And I'm like, "Oh, yeah, that's what we do. You know, like it's, it just felt like run of the mill day." And my mom said, "You know, that is." My mom said, "No, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Like, that's like a rare thing. Like, I probably I've laughed that that way seventeen times in my life, and I remember every single one of them. Like, the idea that you have like this group of friends around you is, is like this wonderful." like magical things, like hold on to it. And sometime around that time, um, uh, I happened to be, happened to catch the Today Show. Paul Simon is on the Today Show. And, uh, you know, Matt Lauer or whomever, you know, says, Paul Simon, you know, you've, you've done so much. You've played Central Park. You know, you've written, you know, indelible classics that are seared into our memories of, you know, American blah, blah, blah. You know, what's the greatest moment of your career? And Paul Simon says that um, when he was eight, uh, he was playing Little League and he stole home. And that Matt sounds La- pretty great. Sounds pretty great. And Matt Lauer <laughs> says, oh, please, Paul Simon, come on. You know, you played Carnegie, you know, played Carnegie Hall, you know, whatever. And Paul Simon explains that, that no, like he's sure that this is the best thing that ever happened to him. And it was because halfway through running down the base, he's like, 
holy cow, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. And and so he slid, you know, he slid into home like aware and believing in the whole thing. And, uh, you know, in, in sort of at this coming out of this, you know, this health experience and and, uh, you know, coming coming into this sort of like moment of like of like, you know, feeling like I understood the way the world worked. Um, and in some ways, it's like a way that is like largely held up. It's just sort of like, you know, be kind to people, <laughs> like enjoy yourself, like you don't sweat the small things, um, don't sweat the big, you know, whatever. Uh, it's the small. Yeah, I, I, shoot, I've been sweating the big things. <laughs> um, you what know, are you supposed to sweat? I, I don't know. I Julia, don't know. can you tell us when to sweat? I looked that up on my phone, which I should have turned off. Um, you know, it was it was this sort of powerful thing, and I really like you know, in some way, you know, this is a bit of like a ti- like a too tidy origin story, but in a way, like I you know came from that period, like really, uh, really like obsessed to a certain point of like. Of the idea of, of that you only remember memorable things, which is a simple idea. But the truth is, like, you know, it's the reason why time slows down in the beginning of college. It's because everything's new and all your you know, relationships are new and every experience is new. And it's the reason why, you know, a summer where you do nothing fun, like, flies by. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know. Like, there, there was this, like, that, uh, that sort of fairly simple realization um, in this way that, that is, is – uh, you know, I like I would claim if it were embarrassing to me if I was actually feeling any embarrassment, like became this kind of like, you know, like this sort of like guiding like like way that I saw the world. And and so to have, um, you know, to 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 bump that sort of thought like up against, you know, historical things and to like be watching and like, you know, I remember watching uh, the documentary about Lewis and Clark, the Ken Burns documentary about Lewis and Clark. And I don't remember much of it, but I remember the moment when, in which I was blown away, which is, um, you know, so they're trying to find a Northwest Passage, and they think that the Missouri w- River is going to take them all the way to the Pacific. And, you know, so they're all in the boat, and Sacagawea is there, and they're, you know, moving across the, moving across the you know, American Middle West. And then the, uh, you know, to their surprise, the Missouri kind of, like, you know, dries to a trickle. And they can, they have to basically... You know, the way that I remember it, even though it's not quite this grand, is that, they, is that there they are. They're standing there. There is no more river. They have a boat and a bunch of people. And in the Rockies are right there. And they're like, well, I, I guess we now know what we have come to do is impossible. And um, there's this moment where they just decide that, yeah, we're just going to keep going. And it's like I found that at the time, like, so, you know, so moving. And part of the, you know, part of it is you know, because it's a moving story, but also because I had, you know, the way that the thing had been put together, like we, you had been with these men and, and this one woman on this journey and, and, you know, it was all so exciting and there they are and there they are and the, the historians, you know, these, all these, you know, white middle-aged guys are getting all worked up about how awesome this is and they're pretty much right and then this little thing happens, you're like, oh, dude, wow, that must have sucked and like you just realize that yes, that must have sucked and then the idea that they kept going on despite it was really powerful and so, you know, I, in a way, I didn't, I, you know, I had been collecting these little moments, like the moments when something just sort of like, you know, jumped out of, jumped off a page or jumped off, you know, of a screen or was the little fact that like hung with me from some historic home tour or whatever and I wanted to find a way um, to, to basically, I wanted to find a way to tell stories that would um, kind of reconstitute 
you know, find a way to a cut to the chase so that you didn't have to watch three and a half hours to like get to the point where wow, that's incredible. Because the truth is, if I had done a slightly better you know job telling that story just right now, like you would have been like, holy cow, what a great story. And um, you know, to find ways to sit down and and essentially like take those moments that had moved me, figure out the way to tell the story to on some way if, as efficiently as possible, but but like also you know I I do sort of tie efficiency with power to like as powerfully as possible um, you know get someone to as closely as possible feel you know feel and be moved in the same way that I was originally. I want to ask you this question about. Uh, the whole business about nearly dying at 17 and getting into jacket work and all these different things. Mm-hmm. Like, isn't that just the description of the life of a guy that, like, gets addicted to heroin and ends up killing a prostitute in New Orleans or something like that? Like, someone who's... What do you mean? Someone who's, like, trying to get the most out of every moment. Isn't that supposed to lead inexorably towards disaster? I suppose. But, you know, but the truth is I was also, like... You know, but keep in mind that like, I think I think you know someone is just you know someone is just this is you know sort of I was also like a happy kid you know I was doing fine, and so it didn't have sort of like holes that needed to be filled. Doesn't it transform it at some point into a Werner Herzog movie? I guess is what I'm asking. <laughs> it's like a Vince Caraldo type Kla- situation. Klaskinski is is going down the river with yeah. with me and and uh, Sacagawea. Um, you know, I I suppose, and and I guess that I guess there could have been moments sort of later on in my life, which could have spun in different directions, you know. But instead, like you know, even my even the sort of weird lost, you know, the the period where I was very ill, um, just biologically, was actually sort of like a lost period. It wasn't a dark period. It was just this this like time I can't really remember when things like got a little screwy. And, like, I started to get bad grades and stuff. But, like, those things were more or less recoverable. I mean, there were, like, you know, I have this, like, weird, you know, lost nine minutes of tape in the middle, you know, in the middle of, of my sort of high school experience. And it definitely – and I had this, you know, there was in some ways this sort of, like, life before and life after. Um, you know, but it also, you know, was – you know, it was kind of – you know, both versions were kind of happy. It was like a sliding door – it was pretty much a sliding door scenario. It was like, you know, I spent the beginning of my – you know, I spent the sort of beginning of, of this period, uh, you know, of, of high school as this kind of like, um, I was, ba- you know, I, I had gone through middle school and stuff as kind of like, you know, the eighth man in the basketball team, like the sixth man in the pos- popular kid table. And, you know, so entering high school when that, that is a, that is a rough identity to have, like, cause you are, you are nowhere, um, you know, and and also like I would, you know, it was also holding me back from my like, you know, better instincts. You know, because in the meantime, while being that kid, I was sort of like secretly listening. You know, not necessarily secretly, but I was like listening to music that no one cared about, and you know, and reading books and and you know, being interested in things that that um, that it was only me. And then sort of I I came on the came out on the other side of that and found the kids that were into those things, and it was like ah, my people. And so uh, it was very easy, easy, you know, non. Last exit to Brooklyn sort of transition. <laughs> there aren't a lot of people who um, are into history. Isn't a lot of it about sorting out what's important and what's not important and, like, explaining complicated systems and not about what's the part that feels the most amazing? Yeah, I think, I think so, you know, uh, which, is pro- which is probably why I don't read a lot of history. You know, I think that... You know, part of the 
you know, I think that when I was thinking about an hour-long show, I think that part of the um, the pitch and part of the, the appeal is that, you know, I could turn to that guy that just, you know, wrote the 750-page treatise on, I don't know, clam digging or whatever in Nova Scotia. And I guarantee there's a good three minutes in that 750 pages, you know, and to try to, you know, to, you know, to try to, to find, uh, you know, I mean, all I really cared about. And on some level, you know, as I've gotten older, you know, there are more things that are, are legitimate in this world, you know, uh, in terms of uh, keeping roofs, roofs overheads and, and, and commitments and whatnot. But, you know, all, you know, all I sort of cared about in terms of my... I don't know, my cultural pursuits, my pop cultural pursuits. It's like I just wanted to like be wowed. Like I wanted to find things that were that were wonderful and, and like literally in like the, you know, the the true meaning of the word, like, you know, full of wonder, you know, and, uh, you know, whether they are, you know, ecstatically hilarious or, you know, super dark or whatever. But just like, you know, it's uh, this, you know, engaged with engage with like this the sort of stuff of life and in like in a way that was surprising what was the story that was at the top of your notebook presume this is a sortable notebook <laughs> sure no i it um it was it was probably the what is actually episode two um episode two of the memory palace is about passenger pigeons and um there was a day in my mid-20s where um I went, uh, you know, I, I went to uh, this this museum at Harvard. I can't think of the name of it because um, I'm really not meticulous in that way. Uh, but I, you know, went to this museum at Harvard. Uh, the Harvard Museum of Pigeons. It was the Harvard Museum of Pigeons. No, uh, I went to see the glass flowers. Do you, have you heard about the glass flowers? Yeah, I think I've seen the glass flowers. Yeah, exactly. Harvard, yeah. Um, have you seen them at Harvard? Seen photos of them? I think I saw them at Harvard. My mom did a fellowship there. I, we saw a couple of special, and I think I remember glass flowers. Yeah, and so, uh, so I, I mean, I love the glass flowers of Harvard, uh, which basically um, these two German guys, the Blaschkas, I believe in like the late 19th century, like 1885 or so, um, you know, because uh, you know, sp- you know, um, uh, basically a lot of biological specimens for, you know, uh, for uh, what's the, what's the uh, botanic study, um, you know, were very fragile and they didn't have good ways of keeping them. And, you know, yeah, you could have like a, you know, this type of lemongrass, but you couldn't have the flower because it would fall. It was too fragile and you couldn't ship it around the world. Um, you know, they basically made these like really beautiful glass models of these things and which is a sort of a lovely you know a lovely idea like you know if if for instance you're a person who's really interested like you know i was to the point of obsession in in you know noticing and capturing the ephemeral like these are men whose like whole lives were were set to doing that like of you know capturing the moment you know the moment before bloom of a blooming rose is is kind of the ultimate manifestation of that in a way um but you know, they, but they also did these great things where, where, you know, they also like they would do they would look at them through microscopes and then they would make a tiny little like glass version of it at 125 times, which is great. It's just lovely. Um, and so and it's also this place where they have like, you know, really cool, you know, stuff that is very much up my alley, like a big wall of of all of the uh, of taxidermied um, hummingbirds, you know, of all, all the types of hummingbirds, this sort of taxonomy of hummingbirds, which is a lovely thing. But they had a stuffed passenger pigeon um, that was, like, shot at, I don't know, Daniel Webster's house or whatever. And there was just this little description of of, of the passenger pigeon and, and how, 
Um, you know, back at one point, there were literally like five billion of them, and by like centuries, you know, by centuries end, there were like thirty-five, and and by nineteen thirteen, they're extinct. Um, and there was also this this sort of notion of. Uh, that you know when they would pass overhead, they would like you know turn day to night for like nine hours straight, which is incredible, like absolutely incredible. And so that was a factoid I would roll out at you know drunk, and uh, you know and, and would notice on some level that I would be able to tell it in such a way that that it would not be annoying. And um, you know and so that was one of these things that I had kept you know just had kept with me for a long time. And I feel like many of the first, like, 20 episodes of The Memory Palace are these things that I had had. And if anything, like, I ran into sort of a problem when I suddenly needed to generate, like, you know, new fonts of wonder. Um, <laughs> because, you know, that's, those things, because, you know, in daily life, that is a difficult thing to come by. Particularly as you're older and, like, have a child and, like, have work you need to get done and stuff. There's this, uh, obviously, the stories from The Memory Palace take place all over the continuum of time. But there's, they are focused uh, at least my impression is um not having done a survey only having listened to them all mm-hmm. um on this sort of time between like i don't know just before the civil war to like world war 1 sure and i took this class in college on and it was my favorite class i took in college although granted i did not like classes in college that much but it was about that it was about like world war it was about civ- maybe civil war to world war 1 american popular culture i think sure. is what it was it was like a part of a two part series on american popular culture maybe three part maybe there was a pre civil war one and um it's a really intriguing time because to me anyway because it's very recognizable but completely wrong and different right <laughs> And that's a that's a good place to generate wonder. Yeah, no, I think that that's true. I, you know, I think that I think that I, I think I do. I think like if you had done the survey, and I'm frustrated that you haven't. I feel like there are enough interns out there <laughs> prepped you properly with like a you know Excel spreadsheet. Um, I, you know, I think that that's probably true, and it's definitely you know I I feel like, and I also feel like I think that when you when you look at just the sort of like. Um, when you even look at the sort of Portlandia of the world, you know, I think there's a reason why we, we go – I think there are reasons why why we sort of as a culture sort of like return to those times. Um, and I think part of it is that, that like they are the first time in American history where uh, a lot of the structures that we have now are in place. You know, like city, cities are – cities are cities, but they're, but they're different, you know, and jobs are jobs, but they're different. And, um, you know, we're not, we're not some agricultural society and stuff like that. I think that, like, it's the, it's the time when sort of contemporary, you know, contemporary, at least contemporary white America is starting to kind of uh, cohere. Um, but, you know, moreover, it's, it, it really is like it's, – it is this time of, like, wonders. It's this time when people are doing things, like, you know, doing things that, that um, we've come to take for granted um, for the first time. And just like – and also we've also come, come to take – the idea that we're doing something for the first time for granted, you know, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, um, of amusement parks. 
Um, but particularly like old old amusement parks. Have you watched that uh, Rick Burns documentary about uh, Coney Island? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's so great, right? It's great. And then there's there's this uh, uh, silent movie from like 1929 called The Crowd, which is amazing. And and it's and it's like shot on location in Coney Island. Like there's a, like a love story that goes on there, and it's just incredible. And part of it is that like I can't believe that OSHA has allowed these people to like do this crazy thing. Someone <laughs> is going to die. Oh look, someone just did. Like there's there's that. Um, but some of it is that also you have these incredibly simple things, which is like riding a wooden horse that's on a rail, like down a hill and like having a race. And, you know, it's a slightly dangerous, but like, eh, it's not that dangerous. But what a great thing. Like, it's, it, like it sounds super fun. And like so many of those things, it's just you look at those and like that would be so fun. Like what a good night out that is. And, um, you know, and so I, I've always been interested in these things that like that have gotten sort of like left behind kind of for no good reason. You know, there are these like like sort of wonderful experiences. I was I was this way about a stereoscopy. You know, I like I would take I would take two disposable cameras and like I would stick a big, you know, sort of jumbo pack of gum between them and put some tape around them so that the uh, cameras are are set set apart like three like a 3D camera with the lenses we set apart and and I would take those you know, sort of everywhere in my mid twenties, and I had this like. We're doing of... a stereoscopy class, by the way, at Max Planck oh, East with Eric Drysdale, who's a obsessive uh, with stereoscopy and and writes for the Colbert Report. Yeah, I was really, I was like, I was, I was hardcore into stereoscopy for a while. But I, but I think that there, there are these experiences um, that you know that that like get left behind that are like really wonderful and that you know is that I was personally interested in like having some of those experiences and seeing and seeing some of those things again but when you look at that period of time you know it's it's incredible to think that um you know that there was a, a generation of people you know who was the first generation to walk around at night with lights on like that's crazy I I was really into I ended up I think I wrote my big term paper in that class about con men. Mm-hmm. But um the thing that I thought was really cool about that stuff is uh the f- the fancy culture studies word for it was liminality, but you could also call it tweeners. Sure. Um which is to say that like there's all this stuff that in that time that is about sort of Something that is between, especially between real and fake. Right. Um, do you? One of the memory palaces was about the uh, the Mechanical Turk, right? No. Did you do a memory palace about no, the Mechanical no, Turk? No, that's that is a uh, Radio Lab episode. Oh, there's a Radio Lab about the. Anyway, I was super into the Mechanical Turk at no, the time. No, I'm sure. And who wouldn't um, be in the Mechanical Turk? Yeah, exactly. But there's all this different stuff. That is, um, there's all this different stuff that's about, I mean, like if you take like P.T. Barnum, mm-hmm. oh, you did a Joyce Heth. Joyce Heth. You one, did yeah. a Joyce, that, that was a big thing in my, so like Joyce Heth, if for people who don't remember the episode, um, was just this old black lady yep. that P.T. Barnum claimed <laughs> bought, was. Bought, <laughs> yes, bought. Yes. <laughs> and claimed was, um. Uh, claimed was George Washington's wet maid. Right, which made her like 160 years old. Yeah, and basically, like, the the big controversy around her for a while was, is she a robot? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, people accepting that she's no, wasn't, 100. It wasn't even like, the big controversy. It was that, like, at some point people were like, yeah, you know, I don't think I'm buying that she's 106 years old. Like, I saw her. She doesn't look like a day over 80 when she was, like, 68 and just had lived an incredibly hard life. Uh, and then Barnum, like, ginned it up. He was like, 
it's like I know what we can do. Let's let's leak that we actually that instead it's a robot. Then people will come to see if it's a robot. Or there's this crazy. Fa- there was this other famous. I mean, there are many famous P.T. Barnum, Barnum things. But one of the things I like, enjoyed the most was he, he was famous in his museum for having a sign that said "This way to the egress." Right. And then people would go out the exit, which is what egress means. Yes, exactly. Um, and they have Where's to the pay egress? to. They have to pay to get back in, right? But the idea that. Or, or if you take uh, if you take Coney Island for example, that there were all these attractions that were based on simulacra of horrible natural disasters. Right. So, like great battles and the Great Chicago Fire and stuff being represented. In fact, much of Coney Island burned down as if I remember if I'm remembering correctly because of a malfunction in the Great Chicago Fire exhibit that <laughs> exactly. literally would light a version of Chicago on fire right. every day or six times a day or something. Yeah, it, and eventually that's going to go wrong. So like all of these things are sort of about and even stereoscopy is about the idea of representations of something that actually exists and the blurring of the line between direct experience and um you know, and these various forms of indirect experience that were being uh, that were being invented. I mean, before that, you just had like guy tells you something, right? And you know, theater play. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I think you know it's interesting because um, uh, it's funny you know, hearing you talk. Like those are all sort of you know thoughts I, I've kind of had, and and then, but I feel like by the, when I really became like like a history buff, like I'd sort of like gone past them. And in a way that I, I was so just, you're saying you're way past me. No, what I'm saying what I'm saying is actually <laughs> is that um I I like I feel like you know the thing that about stereoscopy that that I love so much was that it was just um that it was exciting and it was fun and like and that particularly if you took which is something that they didn't have you know people that used originally didn't have the experience of doing that if you took uh you know a really clean 35 millimeter photo of something that you had experienced and then you looked at it in 3D. It was just just really mindfuck. It was like you know this is like this is this is crazy. I remember this completely. That's right. That woman was standing over there, and and and, and this is this is how close we were. It was this really sort of like enveloping kind of like exciting thing, and you know so many of those. Um, you know what I find so you know what I find so sort of fascinating about like people's engagements with those technologies or whatever is you know is ultimately just sort of like what it must have what it must have felt like and what it must have done, you know, uh, to see, you know, darkest Africa for the first time or whatever, you know, to see these photos. Um, you know, one of my favorite ones, uh, favorite memory palace episodes is the one about the Ferris wheel. Um, because it's just, it's, it's like, it's a stunning thing. Like the idea that that simple, it's a Ferris wheel, but, um, uh, you know, but it was both this sort of like, you know, crazy thrill ride. But also, it's just that, like the first time that you've done that like simple motion of like moving forward and dropping down and coming back up or up and around, um, you know. Which, if you haven't been on a Ferris wheel in a while, is actually still wonderful. And then the idea to like you know to have done terrifying, that for, in yeah, my case. to have done that for the first time, uh, you know, uh, in the middle of the sort of World's Fair in Chicago and having like you know come out from the country to 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 do this thing. Um, you know, to me, it's just it's such a it's such, such a lovely thing. I think it's interesting that you know you obviously are finding these moments and kind of metabolizing them into these tiny diamonds of narrative. And I think it's interesting that 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 strikes me as such a different objective 
uh, or if not narrative, then at least sort of experience. I think some of your things are a little less. I mean, the Ferris wheel one, for sure. example, is like a little more about the feeling than it is about the um, narrative element. Um, but that is such a different goal than most people who look at history. Yeah, I, I think, think I think that that's true. You know, I think that um, you know. Uh, like I read, you know, in part just to, to literally to do the thing that history is supposed to do on some level to understand things better. I read um, this excellent uh, Civil War history, uh, Battle Cry of Freedom, which act- which um, I, I admit that I didn't get all the way through, even though it was excellent. Just there were other things to do in the world, um, <laughs> uh, and it was great. I got this great understanding of you know of of you know whatever of the economic blah 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 and, and you know I, I really came away and i can now have like a sustained argument about the cause of the civil war and stuff that i feel like i can at uh, least you know, the can, cause of the first two-thirds of the civil exactly, war after a while before parks and recreation don't tell me how on. it ends yeah <laughs> that's right um you know but but in the meantime it, like you know the best thing that i got out of that thing was was uh, there was like a, a a two sentence description of the story of uh, you know of ellen craft the the uh slave who you know escaped to freedom you know uh, by you know by pretending to be a, a you know a white man of means um and you know i just like yeah i mean uh, it's it's ultimately you know i go in uh you know to history to to look for people so we left behind the story of the show Sure. Um, and I, I want to get back to it. So basically, you you had this hope to create an hour-long public yes. radio show. I think you ran into a buzzsaw that I'm intimately familiar with, which is the challenges of trying to get someone to pay for it. Or... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was the kind of thing where I, like, I, had, I had even had some money from American public media to do it. But they had asked me to hold off on on spending it until I finished this other project um, as a freelancer, and I had just left Marketplace. And then, you know, by the time I returned to it, like the bureaucratic structure had changed, such that I was, you know, outside people, blah blah blah. It was just this bureaucratic problem. And um, you know, but in the meantime, you know, podcasting had been invented, and so I, we were engaging with, we, you know, we were engaging with that technology for the first time, more or less. And um, you know, and it's just like, oh, you know, I should just sort of do this. And so I, so my plan then was I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to do some segments. I'm going to, I'll do some interviews. I'll try out some different things. And then, you know, six months from now or whatever, like I will have like a calling card where, you know, prior to this, I hadn't done any hosting. I hadn't, you know, I'd done some reporting, um, you know, but people didn't know who I was as a personality. And I felt like I had a take, like I felt like I had something beyond just like, you know, uh, like a semi-radio ready voice. Um, and I figured by the end of the six months or whatever, I'd like, you know, have some stuff. But like a couple of things happened. One is that like people start to listen to it, which is surprising. Like four or five episodes in, like someone at the Freakonomics blog on NewYorkTimes.com like wrote about it. And, and suddenly like I went, you know, we went from having like 39 subscribers to like 3,000 or something like that very quickly. And um, so people started listening to it. Um, I kept sort of running into dead ends, um, which, you know, happened slowly over the course of at least a couple of years in the public radio world um, where things that really felt like they ought to work out didn't work out. Um, but in the meantime, like, I just found that, you know, actually what I like doing is doing these small stories. You know, I, yeah, I mean, I guess I can do a produced piece, but, like, uh, you know, I do this for NPR. Like, I could, you know, I could do an interview, but, yeah, I don't really care. When I had lunch with you, basically I... 
I was I had finished listening to every episode of this BBC show called The History of the World in a Hundred Objects, which I was really into. And I'm not like you. I'm not really a history guy, but I th- so it's I want to emphasize it was purely coincidental that both that sure. and your show were about history. But I sent out a tweet that said. Um, hey, you know, I need a new podcast that's sort of like a history of the world and 100 objects or 99% invisible where I'm both calmed and learn something at the same time. (laughs) It's what what we aim to do. Yeah, like something fascinating. Because everybody always wants to suggest comedy podcasts to me. And I I have all the comedy podcasts I could ever hope to listen to. We've got tons of great comedy podcasts at Maximum Fun, you know. Yeah, and absolutely. Make them so... So I wanted something really cool and fascinating, and I got like I, I got many responses, but multiple people suggested the Memory Palace, and I, I listened to one episode. I was like, oh, this is pretty good, and I downloaded the rest of them and ended up listening to all of them within a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. And you realize it would only take you several hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't have. <laughs> you, you weren't that into it. I'm it a bus- I'm a busy right. I'm a busy man, right? right? So um, I mean, I had to look. There's other things to do in the world. I, I don't know if you've heard. A good friend of mine told me that once. That's right. um, so we had lunch at uh, La Abeja, right. Mexican restaurant by my house, um, a- a.k.a. Mexican Three Stooges, which Jordan calls it because it does have a huge mural of a Latino version of the Three <laughs> Stooges on the, on the outside. And, um, and at that point, you were – you were not really making new episodes of the show. Um, you had sort of vague plans to make new episodes. You had like some that you were, but you were like, I'm working on other stuff right now, blah, 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 blah. And I got the impression that you had practically almost just been, been said, yeah, okay, I'm, that's the end of this. I wouldn't go that far, but it's not, it's not terribly far from the truth. I think that, that, you know, I had realized at some point that I noticed that, um, first of all, that, well, I mean, from a practical perspective, I had noticed that um, even though it pained me and then pained, you know, a certain, you know, population of listeners to wait for quite a while for an episode, I discovered that when I did get around to doing it, um, that people would still be there. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, I also discovered that if I did them frequently, like I wasn't sort of getting anything extra out of it um, beyond the significantly satisfying, you know, act of simply doing it. Um, like, you know, I, there was, you know, like I kept feeling like there'd be a tipping point and it never kind of came in terms of like listenership or in terms of like, you know, someone descending from Mount Public Radio and, and, you know, putting on you can vestments. Wait, you can wait that guy, wait for that guy in the vestments all your whole <laughs> exactly. life. And, um, so, you know, so I was sort of at this point where it was like, yeah, I like doing, I certainly like doing it. I knew that it would be a thing that I would, uh, you know, quote unquote, always do. Um, but there wasn't a lot of incentive, um, you know, to to do it more frequently. And, there, and also, like, there was, a, you know, just in my life in general, there were, like, a bunch of things that, like, that, you know, were really demanding of my time and kind of needed to do because, like, this thing was not going to professionalize itself. It's I got I, I to tell you, like, this is something that I think uh, Jordan has talked about eloquently on Jordan Jesse Go. But there are there are wonderful advantages to... And lovely advantages to amateur enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem with that is that most people, most people who are trying to do this well, this kind of thing, any kind of creative project well enough that it can be, 
you know, well enough that it can really mean something to a large group of people. At some point, they get to a point where they have to choose between doing something just because it's really cool and they think it's really neat and and having a job or working on some other thing that's cool and neat that I mean you sure. at the time that we ta- at the time that we talked you you were helping write a book for the TV show Parks and Recreation right. that ended up getting nominated for a Thurber Prize. Congratulations, Thanks very by the much. way. The, the, I, I just recently lost to Calvin Trillin. Yeah, well, you know, you, can, you, can, you can't ask for much better than that. I mean, I guess beating Calvin Trillin right. is a little better That's than right. that, but it's still pretty good to lose nice. to Calvin it was, Trillin. It was a good time. So, like, at some point you just have to do something because, you, you know, you whatever, you have kids or you... Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? You just, there's no... you you. You can't just do it for free forever. No. And you can't, you know what I mean? No, abs- no, absolutely. And and you know, and then on on you know, it was it's also, you know, the other thing is there's just this this frustration that like, you know, you're not expecting um you know, it was the kind of thing where I you know, actually wasn't expecting public radio people to come down investments. So I was just, you know, expecting them to come down in their khakis and their, you know, <laughs> and their Birkenstocks and, their, and black their socks, you know, and say, hey, you know, there's a way that we might be able to, like, professionalize what you do and provide, you know, sort of a lower middle class living and mm-hmm. is what you do. You know, because the truth is, I feel like I do I do what I do well. Right. And also and I also feel like it, it is, uh, you know, it is a populist enterprise. There's, there's right. nothing... There's nothing freaky about the memory palace. And, um, you know, so it felt like something ought to work out on some level. Um, you know, and, and sort of over and over again, you know, it kind of didn't. But, you know, I was still sort of – like, so at some point, and I feel like this is right right when I had talked to you, I had kind of realized that, you know, I had realized that the memory palace was never going to be um, Taylor Swift. And uh, sadly, because that is what we all want for all things. No matter we do. how many sit-ups you did, that's right. I, the memory palace would never be Taylor Swift, um, you know. But in the meantime, uh, like I had, to, I had like I had I had a cult band in my hands, and you know, and when I was in bands, you know, in my twenties, um, you know, if someone had told me that I could I could have as many listeners, you know, to my records or whatever that I did to to the memory palace, like I would have felt I was like that would that's great. And, you know, and, and when I would get letters from, uh, you know, get emails from people uh, that listen to Memory Palace, like they just weren't like, hey, dude, I, f- I found your thing. Like they were really, really sweet and heartfelt and like close listeners. And, you know, and I just discovered like there was nothing better than, you know, getting feedback um, from someone who was essentially sort of seeing similar things in what you were doing that you were seeing yourself. And... um you know, so I just on some level I kind of just you know decided to stop worrying and you know and love the bomb, which is sort of like you know what this is this is what I do, um, but I do need to change the terms of the agreement, and I'm going to do this when I can do it, and I'm going to do this when I am moved to make something really good, as opposed to like well, yeah, let me push something out and hopefully I can make this thing a little bit better than it is right now, and um, and so so that shifted the that shifted the the perspective, but in the meantime, you know, when we had our second lunch, uh, you know, maybe ten months or a year later or something like that, um, when I introduced you to the uh, the sardine pizza, um, <laughs> I you know I feel which like, I decided against by the way. It's, it's fine. It's fine. Um, you know, in the meantime, like you know, I was all I had discovered that because um, because I had sort of like scaled back my ambitions for it. Um, and gotten sort of like lackadaisical about, you know, about sort of doing them. 
in part simply just because they are hard to do. You know, uh, it, it, it's it is both. You know, it is they are you know literally difficult to sort of write and and put together and do really well. But they are also um, it is simply difficult to be you know to find wonder in something <laughs> in your day to day life. Um, you know, and be be moved such that you're like, oh man, I want to do something with this. Uh, you know, I, I think that I. You know, in the meantime, like I was also, it was dropping off in a way that was like kind of like bad for me. In some ways, bad for me professionally because the truth is, it had become this calling, this calling card, and this like defining thing. Um, you know, and and but I, you know, I simply, you know, I needed uh, on some level to be incentivized to continue to do them, and and I also needed needed some money, to, some money, <laughs> yeah, um, to justify the time, and you know. And Max Fund, Max Fund helped you know helped do that. But beyond that, it was also just like it was sort of a, a resetting of the kind of like it was a resetting of like the agreement with the listener, you know, by you know by you know having this sort of new audience, um, you know, folded into the you know this sort of wonderful existing audience, um, and to like have like people you know be like, wow, I just binge listened to all of them. What are you going to do next? I hope it's as good as what I just listened to. Um, you know, was sort of a nice reestablishing of the bar, um, you know, that I had needed. And it was sort of both like kick in, like kick in pants and, you know, uh, and carrot. I think, I think you, you said a couple of times the idea of sort of resetting the terms of the agreement. And I think part of that is about, and this is my outside perception, but part of it is and based on partly on my experiences is part of that is about when you're, Created, creating something with the idea of some kind of um, establishment recognition, you know, like you're you're creating it because you want to make a show and you you think that you're doing something really good and the and Joe Joe Public Radio is the owner of Public Radio is going to write you a check and put you on two hundred stations or whatever. Um, that's a very different sort of process than. Um, when you can reset and realize, wait a minute, I have this audience that I can have, my relationship can be with the audience. It doesn't have to be with these people that I can't even get to like say yes or no sure, or right. pay attention, return my calls. Mm-hmm. Like actually, as long as I define it to this width that I can handle and the scope that I can handle and as long as I can make some money out of it so that I don't have to compromise yeah, on so you, feeding so my family. You look yourself in the mirror while you're doing it. Your yeah. relationship can be with these people who really care about it. That's yeah. something that keeps me going when I'm frustrated about the outside things. It's like, oh, but I do have this relationship with a not insignificant group of people who yeah, really give a shit. Yeah, no, it's – it's uh, you know, I think part of what – I feel like part of, you know, what – drove this sort of like, you know, I guess reinvigoration of things is that, you know, I had like I had kind of decided, um, you know, like I threw up my hands in the best way. I was sort of like, you know what? No one's going to do this. Then I'm going to do it. Like I'm really going to do it the way that I I did. I, I want to do it. And, you know, it's not that I hadn't been doing that all along, but it was suddenly like, you know what? Like I, I'm really only going to do this when it is the thing that moves me. Like I'm only going to do this when I feel like I've like – you know, when when I have sort of like a need to like make art of it, and um, and, and you'll make sure that happens at least once a month. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> and and that got that got more that got more and more. So in some ways, like like the, I think the show's got a little bit more idiosyncratic, and I and I kept finding that people were still with me, and the idea that like I could like 
you know, I could have this sort of, you know, odd interest and this odd connection to, to something that, that, you know, that the world was not guaranteed to connect with also. Um, uh, you know, but yet, you know, I sort of saw over and over again that, that, that they did and that they would, would, um, you know, was so, I mean, you know, just sort of so, so on a very basic level, just like, it was super gratifying, you know, and, and, uh, and sort of heartwarming in the best way, like in that, like, you know, the heart needs to be warm to, uh, to keep the engines running. Um, yeah. And, and I don't know, it's it, like podcasting is a weird and lonely business. Um, you know, I think that, that, you know, I think that you are particularly lucky in that you do like, be, you know, partially because of comedy, uh, you know, so many of the things that you do are comedy, um, like that you can, you know, you can take the show on the road on some level and, you know, hopefully there'll be sort of a time, uh, you know, when the memory palace can do that in some capacity because, you know, it'd be fun and, and I like performing and whatnot. Um, but, uh, you know, it is like you, it, there's a lot of sort of self-belief <laughs> that you need. And so to get, you know, to get these emails from people um, that, you know, it was just, it was that clearly were connecting um, in a way that actually connected to me. It wasn't just like, oh man, I love that thing. I had no idea about that. I'm going to go tell my family. It was just like, I was moved. I like my child in the backseat was wondering why I was so moved by this thing and, and why daddy needed to pull the car over. Like that, that's a, it's an incredible thing. Um, speaking of connections with audiences, I did I did uh, get a couple questions here to ask you from Max Fun listeners right on. On, on Twitter and Facebook. So here's something with here's something from our pal Alice, a, uh, a serious Max Funster. Alice is Alice wrote uh, Alice record when when judged when we did Judge John Hodgman, uh, we did an episode where. Um, uh, that was about somebody's Camaro and mm-hmm. Judge Hodgman sang the song Bitch and Camaro by the Dead by Milkman. Dead and uh, Alice then took that and and arranged music for it. Like took his acapella <laughs> and like <laughs> added put, put drums music. and guitars. And, Excellent. Yeah, it was pretty spectacular. Anyway, Alice says, um, so uh, how much fun versus work, how much fun relative to the amount right. of work was it to write the Parks and Rec book? Um, I am actually currently, like when I leave here, I'm going to go, uh, back, uh, probably to a local public library with my laptop and, uh, I'm writing a freelance episode of Parks and Recreation this season uh, on on the back of writing that book. And, um, you know, a friend who is a a, a television writer and and, uh, a drama writer was asking me how it was going because he mostly wanted to know the difference between writing comedy and writing drama, uh, scripts. And this is, I mean, this is the first, this is my first television writing experience. Um, but I, my wife is a drama writer, so I've been able to sort of see her do it. And on the one hand, it, it's super fun. Um, I love the show. Um, you know, but as a freelancer, like, I just kind of, like, drop in and out. Like, I'll go in the room for a little while and, you know, I'll crack some jokes and I'll, you know, I'll do what they do, which is, like, throw football around in the office, you know, and get paid a lot of money for, to do it, um, which is a great gig uh, that they have. <laughs> Um, but you know, so I, you know, do, do all that sort of stuff. But then when you come home, it is still, uh, it's like writing anything. It is like you write something that you like and you feel fantastic and you write something that is not so good and you feel horrible. And then you wait around for a lot of notes. And so that's, that's what the book was too, which is like, you know, there would be, there, you'd sit there and there'd be times when, when I would be on like a, a total roll and I would feel like the king of the world. And I was having like literally no one is, no one in America is getting paid to do something that they're enjoying more than I'm doing right now a la stealing home base. 
It's like, I'm aware that this is awesome and I'm loving it. And then you'd like struggle to make some joke and you just feel miserable. How do you know when you know a story well enough to retell it? Um, it's an interesting question. Um, I found that not being a trained historian uh, and not being an historian really at all, um, this is sort of a question I had to answer, answer for myself pretty, pretty early on. And then I just realized that, you know, having been a journalist, I know how to do this. You know, it's, it's that, you know, you, you do your research and you ask your right questions and you get to the point where you're like, yes, you know, what I have here is, is true enough. And that's not a cop-out. That's a, that's a big hurdle, you know. And, you know, I, as a journalist, I, always, I actually really struggled with, with, uh, with representing people, with representing live people and telling their stories. Um, you know, it always felt – things felt sort of weird. I was always mm-hmm. very aware of how they would feel. Um, and, and too aware to actually be like an effective journalist of a certain type. That's yeah, why I, I became more of an explaining journalist as I'm, opposed to like a. I'm barely comfortable. I, I'm really uncomfortable doing anything other than long form interviews for that same reason. Yeah, because they're like representing themselves in that. Yeah, there's yeah, there's. I mean, there's like you know, I've never done a This American Life story, and, and that's part of the reason why is that like it just feels it's such such a responsibility. But what I what I discovered over and over again is that there that I was so concerned about like representation and and finding the truth that I was actually missing what felt like the point to me that there was like a poetic truth that you could tell that like you did sort of you there was a point at which you knew you did know enough and you know whether it was whether it was what the person might have thought about themselves like you had a, like and some level you had a better sense of what they were thinking about themselves and so applying to applying that to history like there's just a point where you're like oh like i i have my i a I have my bases covered and that's good and hopefully i haven't made any mistakes i've made a couple that and, and very but very few of them i've decided that i really needed to go back and correct um uh but there's just a point where 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 uh, you know what you, you know you have both made your best effort, but you have found like a truth. You have found a truth that you can stand behind, and and meanwhile being completely aware that there is no such thing. Adam is wondering, how does it feel to have your stories paraphrased for bedtime? Apparently, he is paraphrasing episodes of the Memory Palace for bedtime purposes. Um, thrilled, like completely thrilled. Um, I, I feel like that is what I say go forth and, and everyone should do that. That is that, that makes me super psyched. Ellen is wondering if you'll make her a story. I feel like that would have to be a, a huge premium as these things take so long. Like yeah. even like these tiny things take forever. What kind of what kind of donation are we looking for 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 write a story about the donor? <laughs> right right now I'm thinking something that can give a silent air conditioning to this room. Yeah, this is a toasty this is a toasty little room, exactly. isn't it? Okay, here's something from Griffin. Where do babies come from? Uh, it's interesting. Um, it, I, it's, I, I wish I had a, I wish I had a funny quip for that. Here's something that we're, Chris we're gonna, wants. We should, can we foley in a funny quip? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but you should know that it's just going to be the sound of uh, heels on concrete. <laughs> exactly. If we if we followed it, foley it in. Okay, Chris wants me to have you name something. Because I guess he likes it on Jordan Jesse Go when uh, oh, yeah. we have people name things. More most recently, uh, we've had Nick Hornby mm-hmm. naming things. He's in charge of naming things, but I'm willing to deputize you. 
Um, we should maybe let's let's briefly we could briefly discuss. This doesn't have to be definitive, but we've been trying to figure out what to call this little studio that we record in. You mean like actually a name, like like whether it's like you know the, yeah, like the Frank like the Stanton belly, like the Studios the at the University of Southern California or whatever they're called. Right, exactly. Um, you know, my my first instinct, my first instinct does go to whaling. Uh huh. <laughs> I feel like is that because you're thinking a lot about Rick Burns right now. No, no. I just you know I I shout out to Rick Burns by the way. <laughs> no, I you know I uh, uh, I I like whaling. I think whaling is is you know I don't like the act of whaling, but I like the concept <laughs> of whaling and that it was the thing that once happened. So I feel like there is probably some thing from like because here we are in this weird cavern. Um, the Belly of the Beast isn't belly bad, Belly of the Beast Nate. is not bad. That's pretty solid. I kind of like Welcome to the Belly of the Beast. I feel like that's pretty good. But I was actually going to say that um, I recently, uh, what I would like to do is actually like to reclaim an existing name. Uh-huh. Um, I discovered that I love the word evening mm-hmm. um, because I had never thought of what it actually means. And it is the evening between the the you know the day and the night, which oh, is a lovely concept. Wow. It's a beautiful thing. It never occurred to me. You know, and so right now I'm writing a novel, and uh, and you know I like uh, there was this thing I was like trying to describe that thing. I'm like, well, what is it? It's an evening, and I discovered that I I couldn't really you can't just say it's an evening because no one will read it that way, and it's just it's a lovely word. Well, that's good enough for me. Good, Nate. We've done. We got an out. We're an hour and six in, so I <laughs> think we've we've done our duty for the donors. Thank you, it's everybody t- out there. It's it's been tough to brave the belly of the beast for supporting maximumfun.org. If you're not already a listener to uh, the Memory Palace, I think you should become one immediately because it's really brilliant. I'm really and more pithy. I'm happy. I'm happy and proud that we could be part of making sure that this continues to be a thing in the world. It. it I I did it. Frankly, I invited you to those lunches solely for the personal, uh, the personal reason that I wanted more of that in the world. (laughs) (laughs) You know, yeah. I mean, uh, it's it it genuinely delights me to to be doing it and be doing it, uh, frankly, for the maximum fun audience because. You know, uh, like I, there, there was a there was this cold calculation uh, that that fell into this of like, well, I wonder how many more listeners I could get. But I didn't kind of realize that, like, I didn't realize who those listeners would be, and to like have people that are like so stoked and so sort of engaged and so like like friendly and and, and eager to write an email and stuff has been extraordinary. Like like you know, like literally wonderful to get back to that word. Well, thanks, everybody. Um, Enjoy the rest of your bonus content for Max Fun Day. We'll talk to you another time.